You can turn to Luke chapter 5. Who will be the object of God's kindness? The answer seemed obvious to the Jewish religious leaders during the time of Jesus' ministry. And today the answer seems obvious to billions and billions across our globe. The obvious answer would seem to be that God will show His kindness to those who work the hardest. God will show His kindness to the one who is the most righteous. Or the obvious answer might seem like the one who stands or who works and avoids the most sins. That is the one who is the recipient of God's kindness. But the fact that those answers are dead wrong is what makes the gospel so incredible and so scandalous. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes on this basis, apart from works, he is justified. His faith is counted as righteousness, Paul says in Romans 4. So God justifies the ungodly apart from their works on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And so our passage then takes this truth that God's God's kindness, God's mercy, God's justification is for the ungodly and, and really dramatizes it for us. It pictures it for us in the ministry of Jesus. So we not only get this truth, but we get this picture of Jesus moving towards people whom society understood are are sinful. They are outcasts. And amazingly, these are the ones that Jesus has come to seek out and to save. So let's take a closer look at the text. There's really two clear sections. You probably even picked up on them as uh, Gary was reading. We have the call of Levi in verses 27 to 28. And we have the questioning of the Pharisees in verses 29 to 32. Let's read the first couple of verses here. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. First, in the first couple of verses, we see that Jesus seeks out those whom he calls to himself. Verse 29, or 27 starts with, after this. Well, after what? If you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus was teaching in a crowded house. Four friends tore a hole in the roof, and they lowered their paralytic friend down through the roof so that Jesus might heal him. And Jesus did more than heal him. He said, your sins are forgiven. And he, he demonstrates his authority as God's son in the flesh to forgive sin. And so then he leaves this house. After this, he leaves the house. He, he's going about. He's continuing to teach. But, but the presumption is this crowd that included the scribes and the Pharisees has followed Jesus out of this house, and they are continuing to watch him as he interacts with others. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector. Like Simon's encounter earlier in chapter 5, this is not coincidence. This is Jesus seeking out a tax collector named Levi. This is a divine appointment. The word saw means more than he glanced over. It means that he intently gazed upon Levi. And he singles out this tax collector. 
In chapter 3, if you've been with us through this whole series in Luke, we got a glimpse into the, the reputation that tax collectors had. They came and they approached Jesus and they said, or not Jesus, John the Baptist. And they said, John, what, what, what must we do to do works in keeping with repentance? John, what does it look like for me to repent of my sin and continue to walk in repentance? And John the Baptist said, only take that which is required in taxes. So we got this glimpse that a tax collector was, was a Jewish person, typically, that worked for the Roman government, but they had a reputation and a well-deserved reputation for, for not only collecting the taxes they were supposed to, but then they could charge whatever they wanted to on top of that. And they, they even had, you know, I like to call it a brute squad, to go and enforce their agenda. A tax collector was a robber. And as a robber, they were excommunicated from Jewish life and Jewish society. They were not allowed in the synagogue because they used their position to abuse and to steal from their fellow Israelites. They were considered sellouts to Rome who had occupied Israel at this time. They were numbered with the sinners and the prostitutes. A tax collector's testimony would not be allowed in court as they were considered by default liars. And this reputation, again, was well-deserved. And so Jesus seeks out this well-known fraud and thief and abuser. His name is Levi. This is, if we compare the gospel accounts together, this is Matthew, the disciple who wrote the gospel of Matthew, like Simon Peter has two names that he's referred to in the Gospels, and like Saul and Paul, in fact, Paul is called Saul after Acts 9, so Paul had a couple names. This is Levi Matthew, or Matthew Levi, the tax collector who will become a disciple and an author of one of the Gospels. We saw earlier in Luke that Jesus calls the common man to himself and Peter a fisherman, James and John, who were also fishermen, and now he calls one of the most hated men in all of Capernaum. We asked, who is the recipient of God's kindness? And the shocking, scandalous answer is a thief, a liar, a robber, an abuser, and a fraud named Levi. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in society. I was trying to figure out, you know, in our minds, what, what connections do we draw? And I think in our, in our context, we'd say maybe a crooked politician. Now, we love a good statesman or stateswoman. We think government matters and that it's important. We love good civil servants, but for us, we might think of, of the politician who has used their authority not for the good of others, but to serve themselves. That's sort of like the reputation that the tax collector had. And Jesus sees Levi. He seeks him out. He takes the initiative with the sinner, the outcast, the lowlife. He searches him out, and he demonstrates through his calling of Levi to himself that this is the type of person that I've come to save. The, the ungodly, the unrighteous, the sinner receives mercy. So Jesus seeks him out. He calls him 
to follow him. Follow me, Jesus says. This is the call of Christ. This is what he called Simon to in, in chapter 5, verse 10. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus will say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In interacting with the rich young ruler, Jesus will command him to go sell all of his possessions and follow me. And so with an amazingly concise and brief sentence, Luke describes Levi's uh, response here. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. Jesus says, follow me. And Levi says, I'm out. I'm following you. We get, we get some further pictures and details here of what it is to follow Jesus. Levi forsakes his old manner of life. For him, for, from the time Christ called him, he will prioritize Christ over his old profession, over his old lifestyle, over his old um, agenda. And so this images, it pictures our call to follow Jesus. It, it, it images th this moment where we were called by Christ. We were awakened by the Holy Spirit and we followed Jesus. We moved from guilty to forgiven we move from condemned to uncondemned to righteous in Christ. And then this begins a lifelong pursuit then of following Christ. There's a moment. There's a moment that we're justified. And it begins this lifelong process of following Jesus. And so as we think about Jesus' command, then follow me, it's easy to spend all of our time kind of wrapped up in follow. What does it mean to follow? And then we just kind of forget about me. We forget about who Christ is. The one who called Levi to follow him is the only one worth following. The object of God's kindness is not only the ungodly and the sinner and the unrighteous, it is the one who sees Christ for who he truly is. And he says, he is Lord. He is worthy of my worship. He is glorious. His worth is unsurpassed in all the universe. I will follow him. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the gentle savior. He is worth following. He is glorious. He is the judge of all men. He is worthy. When he says, follow me, he is worthy for us to follow him. You see, Levi lost his job, but he gained Christ. That's worth it. He lost his employment, but he gained Christ, and he gained an eternal inheritance that Peter says cannot pass away. By God's grace, he understood that nothing is worth clinging to if it's going to keep me from following Jesus. So he gave it up. He gave it up, and he follows Christ. And Levi proceeds then to, to demonstrate that this is more than just uh, a fleeting thing for him. He proceeds to demonstrate the change that Christ has brought about in his life by throwing a party in honor of Jesus. And he invites all of his tax-collecting, low-down, rotten friends to join him at this party. We read about it in verses 29 to 32. And Levi made a, him a great feast in his house, 
And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Point number two this morning, Jesus came to save those who recognize they are sick. This is quite a group that's gathered for this feast. This is quite a party. You know, Luke is actually kind when he says that that this is tax collectors and others. He's being generous there. Matthew was less generous. He said, these are tax collectors and sinners. And if Levi's Matthew, he knew. Matthew's more blunt. This is not, as we said about the tax collector, the cream of the crop morally. But Levi here, he desires to introduce his rebel-rousing friends to Jesus. So So he throws a feast, a feast in which no self-respecting Jewish leader would even consider stepping foot in the door. Yet we find Jesus here reclining at table, the text says, reclining at table with the sinners and the tax collectors. He's sharing a meal with them. They are in deep conversation with Jesus. And this would have been absolutely outrageous behavior for anyone who claimed to be a teacher of the law, much less somebody claiming to be the Messiah. The Pharisees and the scribes would have seen this as uh, incompatible with their faith. Remember, they're already frustrated that Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, and now he's out here associating with lowlifes and sinners? What is this? So they're opposing Jesus, and they have one more reason to oppose him. It's further evidence in their mind that there's no way Jesus is who he says he is. There's no way Jesus is God in the flesh because look who he's hanging around. So they begin to grumble. This grumbling to the disciples would have most likely been after the fact since Pharisees would not have stepped foot inside this party. You know, it's not likely that they're at the party and saying, how could you be at the party that I'm at? But they grumble. And their complaint is expressed in the form of a question, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I think the text says the question is directed towards the disciples, but I think the main target, the one they want to undermine, is Jesus. See, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees has blinded them from seeing their own sin. And it has in their mind, it has magnified then the sin of others. And that's what self-righteousness does to us. It blinds us from seeing the depth and the pervasiveness of our own sin, and it magnifies the sins of others so that we cannot seem to identify with them at any level. And here's how we can tell. Here's a a test for us. How can we tell if we're wrestling, struggling with self-righteousness? If you don't think you're struggling with self-righteousness. It's a danger for us as well. We are are oftentimes blind to the reality of our own sins. We have an inner 
defense attorney that goes to work as soon as we sin, spinning what we did and trying to get us a not guilty verdict. And we not only seek to justify our actions and justify our sin or downplay our sin, but often we condemn others in an attempt to elevate ourselves. How quickly we point the finger at others and fail to point the finger at ourselves. How quickly we fall back into old ways of thinking about righteousness. We forget that our righteousness is not in me, but it's in the righteous work of Christ on my behalf. It's not in my ability to outshine my neighbor, to be better than fellow church members. My righteousness is rooted in Jesus Christ. So here's some ways that I, I think it's tempting for us to, to express self-righteousness. Some ways that it might show up in us, and I think some ways it shows up here in the Pharisees. One way it might show up is grumbling about others. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're grumbling about Christ. And when we find in ourselves that we are continually grumbling against others, whether we know them or whether we don't, and yet we are rarely complaining about the sins of our own heart. If our complete focus is outward and we never turn the spotlight in here, we may need to repent of our self-righteousness. Another way this might express itself is boasting in ourselves. I could never be like that guy. I could never be like that girl. Or my knowledge of Scripture is so far beyond that person that we, we even struggle to have a normal conversation. I have a hard time dealing with that person. A third way might be uh, just an overall demeanor of being judgmental. I'm not saying, obviously, that we don't make judgments I'm not calling us to have some sort of naive outlook on others or this world. But we should be careful about the way we think and the way that we talk about others, that we we see others through the lens of Scripture, that we think about others biblically, that we're closer not to the Pharisees who say, why in the world would you eat with that person, but to Jesus who says it's the sick who need a physician. They need Christ. I think a fourth way, in a really, a really subtle way, is assuming the motives of others. I think self-righteousness demonstrates itself in assuming the motives of others. See, only the truly righteous would, would be able to gaze into another person's heart and know fully what is happening in their heart. So if we presume to know what's going on in someone else's heart, we are simply claiming knowledge that we do not have. Now we can ask and we can, we can guess. So if we find in ourselves, and here's what I'm really warning against, not, not that we don't search for heart issues, we do, but here's what I'm warning against. If we find that we are constantly assuming the worst in others, we're constantly assuming that they have the absolute worst motives, It wasn't a mistake, it wasn't an accident, I know for sure that they did that on purpose. Again, whether this be on a personal level or whether it be on a larger scale with other pastors, other churches, we might be falling back into self-righteousness. And then a, a fifth way that might be surprising, and this whole, and we see this in our world, but the whole 
agenda behind what we call cancel culture is a self-righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. There is no redemption. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. There is no moving past. The world is dogmatic on its issues. And if you cross the line, you're, you're done. Why? Because if I can be mad at you, it means I'm better than you. It's a self-righteousness. So self-righteousness doesn't always express itself in some these really legalistic practices or what we would call legalism. So what do we do? Certainly we all find in ourselves some level of self-righteousness. What do we do? We return to the gospel of Christ. If we are confident, if we are confident that our righteousness is a gift given to us in Christ Jesus, then I am free to admit that I am a sinner. I am free from having to, to tear someone else down so that I might feel better about myself. I am free from having to look down on others and I can see them through the lens in which Scripture presents them. I am free to have a godly compassion towards those who are bound in sin. Their eyes are blinded from seeing the glory of the gospel and I can move towards them if I'm confident that I'm justified, not by my own righteousness, but by the work of Christ on the cross on my behalf. So even though I'm sort of using the Pharisees as, as, a, as a model here, I, I want to be careful not to make this one-to-one correlation between Pharisees and the church. I think many have fallen into this trap, and they say, you know, Jesus didn't really get along with the religious crowd, so he must not like Christians very much. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous. The church are the ones who have seen the reality and the weight of their own sin and have turned from their sin and trusted in the work of Jesus. The church is the ones like Levi who have seen their own unworthiness and yet have chosen to follow Jesus. So what I'm warning is not that we are one-to-one with Pharisees, but we might have a tendency to drift back into old patterns or old ways of thinking. Self-righteousness tends to cling to our hearts. So in light of this grumbling by the Pharisees, Jesus gives then a twofold answer in verses 31 and 32. The first is, the sick are the ones who need the doctor. Why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Because the sick are the ones who need a physician. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, doesn't just come out and blast the Pharisees. He will. But today he kind of takes the the, the back door and he tries to teach them and instruct them and and, and almost in a sarcastic tone help them to see their own sinfulness. The point of the proverb is, is very simple. The healthy don't seek out a doctor. The healthy don't need a physician. Only the sick go to receive treatment from the doctor. And by God's mercy, this doctor is making house calls. He has come, and he has called Levi. In fact, Jesus has risked his reputation. He has risked his own fame. He has put his reputation on the line by associating with the lowly and the outcast. This this doctor is not just sitting in Jerusalem saying, well, if you can make it to the clinic, I'll help you out. He's seeking. He's finding. So it's the sick who need 
a doctor. And then Jesus kind of teases out what this means. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus rests, his answer rests on his mission. That I have come, not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. I think there's a hint of sarcasm in Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the scribes here. Because Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees are healthy. And he's not saying that the Pharisees are truly righteous. Jesus is saying the Pharisees don't know that they're sick. And they don't know that they're sinners, so they'll never turn to the physician. They'll never turn to the Savior. They don't know that they're unrighteous, and so they won't repent. There's no room for repentance in someone who's already righteous. But here's how Jesus would describe the righteousness of the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but in the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's an outward righteousness. Inwardly, they are dead in sin, and they don't see their sin, so they'll never turn to Christ. The Pharisees, as those who are only outwardly righteous, gave themselves to the study of the law, even sought to add to the law, but they missed one of the main tenets of the law. One of the main purposes of the law, to demonstrate the holiness of God, and therefore for us, man, to see that there's no way we can keep this law. They missed it. They missed it, so they were outwardly righteous, they were inwardly dead in sin. So the Pharisees aren't healthy and righteous. They're self-deceived into believing that they are. And as long as they're convinced of this lie, they they will never humbly come before Christ and say, I'm sick and I'm in need of a doctor. They will never say, like the tax collector, until they are humbled, Lord, be merciful unto me. A sinner. That's true for you this morning as well. That if you view yourself as good and righteous before the Lord on the basis of your own good works and on the basis of your own morality, then you have deceived yourself into believing the very thing that will keep you from coming to Christ. Sin has rendered all of us guilty before God. We are to use Jesus' imagery here, sick with sin and in need of the only one who can heal us, deliver us from the penalty of sin, Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. Run to Him. and He will save you. But God will not. He will not save those who are resting in their own righteousness. He will not save those who gloss over their own sin and seek to justify themselves and refuse to humbly acknowledge their own hearts. So in an incredible twist, the ones so zealous, seemingly zealous for the Lord, so much so that they would add to God's law, 
and a twist, they are the very ones who are excluded from God's salvation. While the ungodly receive the benefits of Jesus' mission to call the ungodly to himself, to repentance. The outsiders in Christ have become the insiders. The outcast has been brought near by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So I've got a couple, I kind of backloaded most of my application here. A couple what we might call implications from the text. First, I think we see in Jesus a, a, a model of separation and engagement with the, the world. The Pharisees were convinced that they were serving the Lord by spurning those who had a reputation for ungodliness. We're serving the Lord by, by looking down our nose at those who have a reputation for ungodliness. But Jesus confronts this very attitude. His statement that the sick need a physician not only was meant to expose the Pharisees as those who are also sick, but it was to confront their attitude. It was to confront the Pharisees that they, the Pharisees, they could not deny. You couldn't argue with Jesus. No, Jesus, they're not sick. Of course they're sick. Of course they need a physician. So this is an indictment on the coldness and the hardness of the Pharisees' heart that Jesus is seeking to expose. They knew the word well enough. They'd studied it long enough. They should have not only seen themselves clearly, but they should have known how to look at others clearly. They should have been broken, yes, over their own sin first, but broken over sin and others and willing to move towards them in compassion and in a hope to, to teach and to instruct. But Jesus then isn't what many would want today in Jesus. He's not an acceptance of any and all behavior and lifestyle type of Savior. It's all good no matter what you choose to do, follow your heart, you do you, you only live once. It's not the type of Christ that Jesus is. Instead, he calls these tax collectors to what? Repentance. And repentance is a turning away from the old life, and it's a turning to Christ. It's a fundamental change of, of orientation. Levi might say it this way if he put words to what he did in verses 27 and 28. I used to be characterized by fraud. I used to be characterized by abuse. I used to be characterized by robbery and selfishness. But now I follow Christ. Though every inclination of my heart is not yet perfected in Christ, that will happen when I'm with Christ. Though I still fight against selfishness and a tendency to place myself above others and to live for the love of money, those things don't characterize me. I have a new direction. I have a new Lord. I follow Christ. And my goal is to be faithful to the will of God. So if we put verses 31 and 32 together then, the treatment, so to speak, for the sickness of sin is a humble acknowledgement of sin and a turning to Christ, the one who can help. Jesus saves those who come to him for salvation. So I should make clear before we drive this point home a little more. Sin, then, we said who is the object of God's mercy? 
the answer is the ungodly, but we should clarify that. We, we should press a little bit further. The ungodly are not automatic qualifiers to receive God's mercy. Sin is the condition of the one who receives mercy. But their sin is not the basis of God's mercy. The unrighteous are not automatic qualifiers. They need to see their sin and turn to the Lord. Jesus came to seek and to save. He came to call them in our passage to himself, to repentance. So it's the ungodly one who turns from sin, who is the beneficiary of God's kindness. But to press in our implication, we might say it this way. Jesus wasn't then engaging. We don't want to, we don't want to press this tax too far. Jesus wasn't engaging in their activities or condoning their sin. Jesus, though, is the one who has come into the world recognizes that everyone already stands condemned in their sin, so he moves towards them in compassion. But true compassion from Christ is, is a call to turn from that sin and to commit to him. So I would just say that we should labor as a church in this, this model that's been given to us. We live in a small town. If someone comes into our church and the whole town, including many in our church, are aware of this person's sins, we should follow suit. We will not condone as good that which God calls evil. We will not. We will seek to be faithful to the, the Word of God and call sin, sin. But Lord willing and by His grace, we will love others, we will engage with them, and we will seek to share with them the hope of Christ. Implication number two, then. In light, of, in light of the Pharisees, we must continually strive to see ourselves accurately. We must continue, continually strive to see ourselves accurately. If you have a Bible, you can flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I usually don't do a lot of flipping to other passages, but this seems appropriate. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six and following. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, we might be tempted to say, well, the text says not many wise. I'm sure God made an exception. I'm sure glad God made an exception for me. But if we said that, we might be missing the point. God's command here is, is to consider your calling. This is your calling to salvation. 
Even the language that Paul uses here of calling and and the call of Christ, it reminds us, and even Paul says here, chosen. It reminds us that we cannot boast of any part of our salvation. Even the awareness of sin, even the humble acknowledgement of sin comes through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So consider then that by virtue of your having been chosen and your having been called by God, that we are all lumped together in this category that Paul calls the foolish of the world, the weak of the world, the low and despised of the world. In context, Paul's arguing that the cross is foolishness to the world. He's arguing that God has confounded the wisdom of the world. He has confounded the wisdom of the wise and made them look foolish by doing the exact opposite of what they would expect, by accomplishing salvation through a horrific death, the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And further than he has confounded the wise by calling the weak and the low and the despised and the foolish, confounded the world by calling the undeserving to himself. So the way that we can know, one of the ways we can know that the cross is God's plan that displays his infinite wisdom is that he saved a sinner like me. One of the ways that I can know that this was not the plan of human wisdom is that he called someone like myself. Who else would do that? Who else would do that? Who else would pick you or me when they're picking teams in cosmic dodgeball? Only God would have this plan. So then to see ourselves properly is not only then to recognize that we are the foolish of the world, the despised, the unworthy, the undeserving, but it's then to see ourselves accurately in Christ Jesus. Look, if you're there, if you turn there, look again at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, part of striving to think accurately, part of striving to see ourselves clearly is not only to have an awareness of our own sin and the deceitfulness of our own heart, but it's an awareness that Jesus has removed the guilt of sin. Jesus has removed the penalty of sin. He took it on our behalf. He has redeemed you. He has set you apart, sanctified you. And he has bought you. He has purchased you. So the goal of this morning's sermon isn't to walk around like like Eeyore and say, I guess I'm just a sinner The goal is that we rejoice in the work of Christ, that he called us to himself and he redeemed us and he sanctified us and he saved us. And when we see ourselves that way, when we humbly acknowledge our sin and we rest in the work of Christ, then we do what verse 31 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the... Classic comedy. I've, I've done a good job of not using movies for a while, so. What about Bob? Bob Wiley tracks down his therapist while his therapist is on vacation with his family. 
And Bob gets off the bus at Lake Winnipesaukee, and he goes to the general store and he begins calling out, Dr. Marvin, Dr. Leo Marvin, and he finds his therapist. While his therapist is on vacation, and, and the whole scene is funny because he's gone through all these deceitful ways to figure out where his therapist is even at on vacation. But he has no idea of how inappropriate his behavior is. And so when Dr. Marvin comes to confront him, um, Bob Wiley, is, who's played by Bill Murray, is just saying, Dr. Marvin, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And the whole scene is hilarious because we all know that this is completely and utterly socially unacceptable. Yet when it comes to us in our, in our pursuit of Christ, in our thinking about Christ, we ought to throw off our social awareness and just be willing to say, I need, I need, I need, I need. Thus far in Luke, we've seen Jesus heal and call and save all kinds of people. From a fisherman to a mother-in-law on her deathbed, from lepers to paralytics and now tax collectors and sinners. And one of the common threads that runs through every one of these stories is they needed Christ and they recognized it. They needed Christ and they recognized it. May we see it. May we know it. May the plea of our heart be, I need, I need, I need, I need. We're completely and utterly helpless outside of Christ's work for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by your word. Humbled not only as we consider our own salvation, but humbled by the task before us to view others the way that Christ has viewed others, to move towards others in compassionate care and sharing of Christ and the hope that they might have in Christ. We are completely and utterly incapable, Father. Would your spirit empower us to love you to appreciate our standing in Christ, to boast not in ourselves, but to boast in the Lord, and to continually see those in our city and in the cities that are represented here see their need for Christ and turn to Him. In Jesus' name, amen.